Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but Are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. In October 2020, Freedom House launched a new tool called Election Watch for a Digital Age. This data-driven tool tackles the intersection of elections, internet platforms, and human rights by tracing how digital technologies are disrupting electoral processes. To discuss this tool, and more broadly, what we can expect from some of the key elections in the region this year, Today, we're joined by Gerardo Berthin, the Director of Latin America and the Caribbean Programs at Freedom House. Gerardo has a long and distinguished career working on citizens empowerment, democratic governance, and anti-corruption programming throughout the region. He previously served at Tetratech and also at the United Nations Development Program. It's a true pleasure to have you here, Gerardo. Margarita. Thank you very much for inviting me to this very cool initiative. Congratulations. This is really a good space to have a very good conversation. Thank you very much. Before we dive into key elections in the region, I would like to take a step back and understand how this new project fits into the work of Freedom House. Freedom House is well known not just for publishing annual research indexes like Freedom in the World, Freedom in the Press, and Freedom of the Net, but also working with local civil society organizations and NGOs to promote democracy and, and human rights throughout the globe, actually. What is the goal of the Elections Watch project, and who is the intended audience? Yes, this new product called Election Watch in a Digital Age is a product that basically targets technological companies, policymakers, and civil society to be able to provide inputs to understand the risks of human rights violations and uh, digital interference ahead of elections around the world. And so the, the, the project incorporates data, written analysis, and also original research. And the idea is to provide these three audiences with uh, different inputs. Uh, certainly, technology companies have become much more important in the democratic sphere, and we want to make sure that they understand and take the risks seriously. Policymakers around the world are also trying to understand how to respond to these new digital threats and electoral integrity, and certainly to begin to um, find ways to regulate campaigns and elections in a digital world. And finally, for civil society organizations, this research can help be a source for their own advocacy efforts, as well as basically plan their work around the electoral periods. How do you go about disseminating your findings? Certainly our website that provides not only a country individual report, but you're able to compare with other countries around the world. We do a lot of social media. Certainly we do presentations if necessary. And this particular product, I think, complements the other ones that you mentioned, Margarita. I mean, certainly it nourishes from our findings in our Freedom in the World report, also our Freedom of the Net report. So we're trying to kind of uh, come a full circle and bring into the fora the issue of technology, human rights, and elections. Yeah. 
Could you walk us through the methodology used for the tool? What sort of data points do you gather and, and how do you engage with local researchers and civil society? Basically, there are three main components of this particular tool. First is the, uh, the data set. We actually created what we're calling an election vulnerability index or EVI, which drones from uh, our Freedom of the World report, as well as our Freedom of the Net methodologies, and generates a score to create this new metric. The index, I think, combines uh, three areas. First, what we call the digital sphere. Uh, certainly, the electoral system and political participation will be the second, and the human rights area is the third one. And so, if I can give a little more detail on the digital sphere, we look, for example, at issues related to um, internet disruptions, the blocking of websites, social media, of course, disinformation and manipulation, which are important topics on online media, and prosecution for online activities, which many countries actually uh, do. For each country, we publish a pre-election assessment right before the election. And this draws on a multiplicity of resources, including research, analysis. That's how we're able to create this election vulnerability index. Last but not least, I think for very selective countries, what we call uh, watch list countries, we work with uh, external experts from civil society and academia, usually based in the country that we're analyzing, to monitor incidents of digital election interference on a week by week basis, maybe a couple of months before the election time. Yeah. One of the countries that I believe you're currently tracking is Ecuador, which held its presidential and legislative elections on February 7th. The presidential election is now headed to a runoff. And these elections are happening at a critical time in the country's history. Ecuador has been hit extremely hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, but it has also been suffering from some more deeply rooted economic and governance issues. Can you talk about what this political moment represents for Ecuador and why this election is so impactful for the country's future? Sure. I think Ecuador election this year is, is really a momentous opportunity to continue to strengthen democracy. It is highly competitive. It has not only national and in-country implications, but I think it has also regional implications because of where Ecuador stands geographically and geopolitically, and also with regards to some of the more regional issues that we are now seeing in Latin America, human rights, authoritarianism, certainly curtailing all kinds of freedom. So in that sense, I think, the elections in Ecuador are, are very important, and they, they're also showing you this continuous infight that we'll see in other countries between the old structures or the old actors and the newer actors and trying to kind of balance hope with different new issues in terms of policy, call it inequality, anti-corruption, which have all been there, but also new thinking around basically youth, millennials, uh, social media women's empowerment, for example. So it is a very interesting election and we'll see what happens in the second round. Yeah. And what sort of digital vulnerabilities did Freedom House anticipate ahead of these elections? How did the 2017 elections help Freedom House determine these risks? 
Yeah, if you look at a pre-assessment of Ecuador ahead of the uh, first round elections, certainly we flagged several issues. Uh, I will divide them basically in, in three, you know, three areas. First, the issue of influence operations. There was a clear history in the case of Ecuador regarding influence operations, specifically linked to uh, the current and the former political leadership. The use, for example, of paid pro-government trolls appeared to be reduced under the Moreno administration. However, still a problem, still a challenge. For example, in 2019, Twitter removed a network of inauthentic accounts linked to the ruling party. The second area is related to content removal. In Ecuador, I think copyright laws is frequently used as a tool of political censorship. Online media uh, outlets have been targeted in this way, so we wanted to flag basically that as a way of kind of highlighting the politicization or the targeting of new outlets ahead of the election. Uh, last but not least, I think the uh, issue of harassment and violence. I think despite improvements in Ecuador, uh, in Ecuador's media landscaping over the past couple of years, online users still face harassment and sometimes violence. Uh, members of the media are certainly one target. Uh, so as political tensions increase around the electoral period and also into the second round, it is important basically that uh, to look at this particular items. Cyber attacks was another area that we flagged basically in our pre-assessment and, and that has to do primarily with digital security, which is a very common concern ahead of elections and there's a history of politically related cyber attacks in Ecuador. Uh, media outlets and numerous candidates were targeted with cyber attacks during the 2017 elections and the media outlets have been hacked in, in recent years. So all of that actually was taken into account in our pre-assessment leading to this year's election. You are also tracking the upcoming legislative elections in El Salvador on February 28th, which will see Presidents Bukele's party, Nuevas Ideas, compete against the country's more traditional parties, the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front, the FMLN, and the Nationalist Republican Alliance, the ARENA. Can you discuss, please, the political climate in El Salvador ahead of these elections? Yes, uh, these elections, which are uh, due to take place at the end of this month, the climate is uh, increasingly concerning from different perspectives. Certainly, there is a very volatile political environment ahead of the elections, in particular related to reemergence of violence, for example, the use of social media, particularly to uh, generate fake news and, and also uh, misinformation. It is concerning. I think also the return of linkages with the military and certainly the disregard for human rights is also a very concerning issue. Recently, there was an attack on uh, members of the FMLN party and that created basically a tremendous backlash. There's still a lot of unresolved issues related to the history of the violations of human rights in the country that's also concerning. And there's a lot of stake, I think, in the elections uh, in El Salvador because the two classical political parties are going to be competing with new forces, including the new party of President Bukele. 
So we are monitoring closely and certainly other organizations such as the OAS and including also the UN are watching closely as we get closer to this very competitive election because it will have a lot of implications with regards to the future of the country. The Bukele administration has been criticized in the recent months for its hostility towards the free press. How might we see this hostility play out in the context of the upcoming elections? Yes, one way that this could actually play out is uh, in the area of harassment uh, on social media. I think uh, there's already a history of Bukele instigating some of this uh, through his Twitter account, not only disparaging journalists and accusing them of propagating fake news. As recently as yesterday, he also announced that everything that is uh, mentioned in international news is fake. We see that journalists consistently face harassment on social media for criticizing his administration, including frequent threats of sexual violence against women journalists in particular, escalating the political discourse, including from Bukele himself ahead of the elections, could encourage a parallel rise in harassment. Given the history of offline intimidation and violence against reporters in El Salvador, it's also worth considering whether some of this digital harassment could escalate into physical attacks. And certainly, as I said before, in this context, there are remnants still of what happened basically before 1992. And so uh, there is a precedent, and that's why we should be all concerned. Freedom House's Electoral Vulnerability Index rates countries based on a set of key electoral indicators, such as vulnerability to internet disruption, quality of electoral laws, and and freedom of assembly, the rating system ranges from 0 to 100, with 0 being most vulnerable and 100 being least vulnerable. Ecuador is rated at 61, making it more vulnerable than El Salvador at 73. Can you walk us through what key differences would account for this difference in rating? Earlier, I mentioned that our uh, election vulnerability index is composed of three categories, just to recall the digital sphere, the electoral system and political participation and human rights. The main disparities between Ecuador and El Salvador are in the first two categories. I think the digital sphere, for example, the legal environment around online activities in Ecuador is a concern. There are concerning laws in Ecuador, including criminal penalties for slander and libel, as well as others related to the digital security. Ecuador also has a law that punishes creating economic panic by disseminating fake news with five to seven years in prison, if I recall correctly. Fake news laws, especially with broad applications that can be easily politicized, are a real threat to online activity. And in Ecuador in particular, some of these laws are applied, and uh, certainly more so than in El Salvador. The COVID-19 pandemic has introduced further complications as the uh, state of emergency opened the door for users to be arrested for uh, misinformation. We um, documented uh, a COVID example. For example, in April 2020, a user called Ruben Ricardo was arrested in the city of Esmeraldas after posting photos and videos of himself in a plastic bag to a Facebook group. 
The bag, uh, meant to be satirical, represented the lack of protective gear for health workers dealing with COVID-19 pandemic. The police claimed that the posts were a source of misinformation and justified the arrest under Executive Degree 1017, which declared a state of emergency. Certainly in terms of electoral and political participation, there's also a difference between Ecuador and El Salvador, and might help explain the rating. In particular, the integrity of the main electoral entity uh, in Ecuador that 2017 and even up to this year's election uh, still had some questions regarding their integrity. So I, was, I would say basically those will be the main differences that are explained uh, between the two uh, scores. Peru is also scheduled to hold elections on April 11th. These elections are coming after a period of widespread protest and political instability following the removal of President Vizcarra in November. The country also has one of the highest COVID-19 mortality rates in the world, according to John Hopkins University. I would love to hear your insights on how some of these electoral vulnerabilities we have been discussing may play out in the Peruvian elections. Yes, just this week, we are going to add the new election vulnerability index data on Peru ahead of the elections in April. But Peru will probably at least initially fare a little bit better than Ecuador and maybe kind of similar to El Salvador. We just discussed the difference between Ecuador and El Salvador, legal environments. I just like to note that in the case of Peru, the legal environments somewhat concerning, especially the defamation uh, is criminalized. We haven't seen significant prosecution of users for their online activity, which is good, but the laws like that are ripe for abuse and certainly traditional journalists face defamation charges. The political scenario in Peru is beginning to get a set for the elections. I think we still have 15 candidates that are being, uh, I guess, approved. One of the leading contenders pre-election was the former mayor of La Victoria, which is one of the ones that actually has been excluded uh, under the new laws in, in, uh, in Peru. He still has uh, until March 12th, if I'm mistaken, to kind of uh, appeal that. So, But just the number of candidates, as it was in the case of Ecuador, 17, it tells you what kind of an election it will be. And certainly in both cases, Ecuador and Peru, at least, uh, you have uh, all faces still kind of trying to compete. I mean, you have Kaiko Fujimori, for example, you have uh, Ollantumaya, you have Hernando de Soto in the case of Peru, just as in the case of Ecuador, you had uh, Gutierrez and, uh, of course, uh, the, the old guard versus the new guard. So it all paints to be a good election, and I encourage your listeners to kind of continue to uh, monitor the uh, pre-assessment in, in Peru and other countries that we're going to be monitoring in Latin America in the, in the next few months. Yeah. Gerardo, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to the entire Freedom House team for this excellent work. We will be sure to include a link to this tool in the episode description. The Americas program at CSIS is thrilled to announce the release of our newest podcast, Mexico Matters. Mariana Campero, CSIS Senior Associate, engages leading voices from both sides of the border to bring you in-depth analysis and conversation on the strategic importance of the U.S.-Mexico relationship. 
You can find it on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 45 West.